Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about temptation and responses to domestic abuse. But before I jump into that discussion, I want to remind you, as I have each and every week, of the resources available at PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community, and it is specifically designed to help you in your response to domestic abuse from a gospel-centered perspective. If you benefit from the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your best next step. Uh, You can find out more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. All right, so today we're going to talk a little about temptation. I had a question come in that I really liked the way the question was worded and had multiple parts. So I thought I would share that with you guys this week on the podcast. So the question is worded like this. Can we talk about temptations of helpers in domestic violence intervention? And then the questioner gives examples, such as the temptation to control outcomes, the temptation to despair, to force reconciliation, to rescue victims, to save face institutionally, to accept insincere or incomplete repentance. Uh, These may be some ways that this individual has experienced pushback from the church or from people helpers, but it certainly encompasses uh, a reasonable observation of the ways in which helpers are uh, tempted in this particular work. So let's talk just a little bit about temptation, and then we'll walk through some of the specific um, avenues that the questioner lists. So for me, you know, there's a couple aspects to temptation, and we won't do an entire theological discussion about this, but, you know, there are some aspects of temptation that we think about scripturally that we flee from, right? So there are aspects of immorality that the Bible call us to run from, to flee from, to avoid, that that type of temptation, that enticement into aspects of sin, uh, we just avoid. And that's a reasonable um, a reasonable approach. However, for much of what happens in our work, we're not talking about the helper avoiding uh, gross immorality. What we're talking about is that pressure um, that's applied to individuals to avoid the right thing, to take the easy path, or to not uh, persevere through a problem. And I, I, I say that based on some particular passages. First is uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's probably one of my favorites. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted more than you can bear, but provide a way of escape so you can stand up under it. It's most commonly interpreted in that God will not give you more than you can handle. I think that's a very poor interpretation as the passage is really talking about strength and endurance 
in the face of problems or more specifically pressure and and i think that's what the questioner is really getting at the parallel passage to that would be in james i want to say james 1 consider it joy when you face temptations or trials of different kinds because the testing of your faith will produce perseverance and perseverance when it's done its work will produce maturity and so there is a beneficial aspect to the weight and pressure of life's choices so let's take that principle that idea okay that scripture is really talking about pressure the temptation to avoid discomfort the temptation to take the easy road the temptation to take the safest path for me as a helper and apply that to our question that we've received today so let's talk a little bit about these temptations for helpers so anytime you step into a domestic abuse intervention i think the questioner has really nailed it here that there are a wide variety of ways in which the pressure of the problem and the process and the people uh, could absolutely uh, persuade us to deviate from our established course to take an easier path and so the questioner lists first a temptation to control outcomes i would say that people helpers fall into this all the time regardless of their starting point so whether it's a biblical counselor or a Christian counselor or a secular counselor or even a secular agency or law enforcement or anyone that steps into this work, one of those chief temptations is to control. And now there are aspects of the work that require controls, especially when working with perpetrators. So when working with abusers, it is important that as much as the helper can maintain control that they do. And I don't mean having a bullying posture or a power over posture. I mean a reasonable modeling of what power and control could look like. And what I mean by that is, you know, the helper needs to set the agenda because an abuser will try to hijack the agenda. The the helper does need to set the tone because an abuser will try to hijack the tone of the meetings. The, The helper needs to kind of set the course and manage the case because the abuser will try to manage the case. And so there are aspects of control. But what the questioner is alluding to here is the temptation, I think, to dominate and to manage all the outcomes. And, you know, all the years that I've been working cases of abuse, I can tell you that, for lack of a better term, that's a fool's errand. It it is a kind of a self-destructive path. You you cannot control the outcomes. Um, Even as a helper, you can set guardrails, you can set guidelines, you can kind of talk through the process and establish goals. Uh, But once you fall to that temptation of trying to control outcomes, uh, you end up doing a couple really unhealthy things. Number one, you put far too much pressure on yourself as a helper because um, only God is sovereign. You you cannot sovereignly rule over this couple and it will, it will absolutely undermine your heart to try to control outcomes. And then, then secondly, you're over-functioning, which is a, a hazard because at the end of the day, there are responsibilities that belong only to the perpetrator 
and responsibilities that belong only to the victim that you cannot control. And to do so would rob them of an opportunity to function the way they need to function. Which is one of the reasons why I love that little passage I cited earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You know, is that the answer to that type of temptation, that desire to, in this case, to take control, is really to persevere. That there's an aspect in which, as a people helper, if we're going to be the best help that we can be to people, we will experience times of discomfort and probably should be uncomfortable. You know, allowing ourselves and trusting God in the discomfort of a case could be one of the wisest and most spiritual things that we can do. Uh, To assume that we know everything and to assume that we can function fully, that if we just apply our process or if we just um, you know, give our counsel and if we just manage it the right way, then everything will turn out okay, is, is really, I would say, one, disheartening and discouraging and harmful to us and our clients, but at the same time is inconsistent with this idea of enduring the discomfort of, um, of helping, especially when you're helping in this type of work. So absolutely, I think the questioner is on to something. The temptation for helpers is to control outcomes, but I'm going to suggest that you not control outcomes. The, the only control you have as a helper is in your own demeanor, in your own responses, in your own approach. That's one of the reasons why when we talk about intervention strategies, we use words like gentle and winsome and firm and resolute. There are ways in which you can uh, maintain a level of calm and control in your own work without exercising that over others. You know, the second thing the questioner mentions is despair. And I get this question quite a bit. How do you, how do you function without falling into a funk or getting depressed or being or despairing? And I can honestly say that I don't know if you can. I think there's going to be times where you're going to have to, you know, wrestle with the funk. I would say at the time of this recording, this past week was one of those. I, I really was discouraged with the number of cases that I was reviewing and the extent to which the violence and uh, rapaciousness and institutional um, posturing uh, had had been discouraging to the point that I just needed a break. And, um, and that's okay. And so I do think that there are moments when you're going to have moments of despair or sadness. But for me, I think one of the helpful things is to remind ourselves again who is in control, to to step back once again and be reminded. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You know, what is it that provides that endurance for us as helpers? Well, it's God's faithfulness. He's faithful and he has been faithful. And, you know, as sad as this is, as hard as this is, God remains faithful. And so while I need to remind myself of my responsibilities and my roles so that I don't overfunction, I also need to remind myself of God's responsibility, of God's role in this, of his great care and oversight of this. And at the end of the day, um, 
we do the best that we can, but God is still um, responsible for the outcomes. And so that temptation to despair is there. Um, but at the same time, there's also great reason to hope, right? Because God's faithful. And if we put our hope in a right thing, I think if we put our hope in the outcomes, like the first temptation we talked about, we'll be, we'll be discouraged and burn out pretty quickly. But if we put our hope in God and, and trust him and his faithfulness, then I think, uh, I think those funks are much more shallow and they're, they're less overwhelming. Uh, the questioner goes on to say the temptation to force reconciliation. And I think, I think that temptation comes from uh, maybe a cultural, a cultural aspect to being a Christian, uh, the high value that we place on marriage. And we should. We should place a high value on marriage and uh, on forgiveness and on reconciliation. I think sometimes, uh, though, we, we really place that above the individuals that we're working with and it's kind of like you know if you've ever it's not a one-for-one one comparison but you know um, if you've ever had to go through physical therapy i know um, I, I tore my shoulder up at one point and had to go through you know physical therapy and the exercises and over time things got a little stronger and it was you know less painful and i was able to do you know a little bit um a little bit more, uh, but I had to go through that painful process, that slow process before I could get back to doing activities that, you know, I was accustomed to. And I think sometimes in this work, we really rush through um, those, those necessary changes, those necessary steps of building strength in those individual parts um, because we're so desperate to return to the outcome that we want, to, to marriage reconciliation. And what that forced reconciliation does, obviously, is it puts um, people in a position to fail. It doesn't put them in a position to succeed in most, in most cases. So I think it's just really essential, again, to step back and, and ask ourselves the question, okay, what is the purpose? Like, why is reconciliation the end result more valuable to me than the slow process of sanctification or restoring someone to God or personal discipleship. And I think the answer is going to be fear, that, that we're afraid of seeing a marriage fail. We're afraid of seeing what we think is our philosophy not working. But in my mind, if we work uh, a biblical process, then we should expect a biblical result. I think if we rush reconciliation without proper repentance and forgiveness, then um, we shouldn't expect it to stick, as it were, you know? So I think that temptation is really motivated primarily out of fear. But let's go back to our little verse that we looked at. You know, God's faithfulness is bigger than that. He gives us the strength, again, to endure. And I think that's um, um, a key point here that this process, whether we're working with victims or perpetrators or churches for that matter, is about perseverance, about staying the course and, and following through, even in uncomfortable situations. You know, the questioner goes on to, to also uh, talk to us a little bit about or ask about um, the idea of the temptation to rescue victims. And I find this a lot. I know I am... Um, 
you may not gather this from the podcast, but I'm very soft-hearted toward victims. I, I struggle quite a bit uh, with um, having a tender heart towards victims. And my gut, like my my fleshly response, my worldly response is I would I would be in that category of wanting to rescue people. Uh, what I have to remind myself of, again, is coming back to my role, you know, and knowing more about Jesus. You know, the last thing individuals need uh, from me is salvation. I can provide hope. I can point. Um, I can point an arrow to salvation, but Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the rescuer. And yes, there are safety measures that we can put in place institutionally. There are safety procedures that we can follow pastorally. But at the end of the day, Jesus is the rescuer. And we're simply we're simply working for him. And I think that's one of the things that um, male helpers in particular have fallen victim to, thinking more highly of themselves than they should, putting themselves in a rescuer mode and then also um, forgetting forgetting Jesus in the process, forgetting the gospel in the process. And I'm telling you right now, as a rescuer, as a savior, um, I am not very capable, not capable at all. So I think that's an important reminder to us that temptation is really deceptive as it's placing power upon us as helpers that we just don't have. Really the only salvific figure in our story again is Jesus and so we want to point victims back to him and through safety and sanity measures we can do that we can help them see Jesus more clearly the questioner goes on then to also talk about uh, saving institutional face this temptation and I don't I don't really I don't fully know where that comes from I think I do I mean I think it's mostly fear I think we're we're afraid of a couple different things. Um, usually the reputation of the church is thrown out there, which I think is a horrible, horrible justification, by the way. Um, the church does not need our protection from its reputation. In fact, uh, let's, let's put it this way, because this has been something I've been thinking a lot about lately. If as a pastor... You know, my board and I are exposed to a case of abuse in our church, and we address it. If it needs reporting, we report it. If it uh, needs discipline, we practice discipline. If it needs exposure, we, we expose it. We do everything that we can within our power to deal with it. It's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to be hard, and we're probably going to do a lot of crying, and there's going to be a lot of tears and maybe even some frustration. And it's going to be a lot of hard work in the short term. We ignore it. We hide it. We push it under the rug. We kick the can down the road. The problems will exponentially grow without fail. And the reputation of the church will then truly be hurt. Because what the world will see is not a gathering of people who dealt with the situation the best they could in the moment, well and wisely. No, they will see a group of people that intentionally and deliberately hid the sin of abuse and sheltered darkness in a place that was supposed to shine light. So no, I don't, I don't buy the, 
we have to deal with this quietly for the reputation of the church. I think that's absolutely baloney, if I can say that on the podcast. Um, and I think that is why you have so many institutions in um, dramatic trouble right now is because people fell to the temptation of saving institutional face rather than turning right their face back to Jesus and um, seeking repentance and forgiveness and changing their policies and procedures for the future. So, no, I think that temptation's there. I think it's motivated out of fear. I think it's motivated sometimes about position, fame, uh, financial security. Uh, but whatever justifications we use to save institutional face, I just um, I can't find it scripturally. I can't find any reason to protect the church's reputation in the short term um, for its detriment in the long term. Um, if there's a failure, we expose failure. That's one of the things that we do in the church, supposedly. And then the, the last uh, temptation listed is to... Um, except insincere or complete incomplete repentance. And I think that goes back to the um, conversations of controlling outcomes and forcing reconciliation. I think we just want to see a nice bow put on it. We want to be done with it, especially people helpers who are engaged in multiple disciplines. I can, I can personally vouch for the um, pressure and life drain that happens in the life of a pastor. So I've been pastoring for 20, 22 and a half, 23 years. And I can tell you that pastoring is a emotionally draining profession. And um, for many of us, there's no real off time. You're kind of on all the time, even when you're not around your people. And it can be a pretty draining exercise. You're expected in many ways to be an administrator and an executive at the same time, a teacher and an educator at the same time, a counselor um, and a listener. And then at the same time, a case manager and a social worker. And in these type of cases, in any type of case, a lot of times pastors will begin to structure and refer their systems so that they can uh, hand off as quickly as possible or see a conclusion as quickly as possible. Uh, and I don't think, and again, I don't want to say that's detrimental. I think for many pastors, it's a necessary part of their job because they are caring and functioning in so many different arenas. One of the problems with domestic abuse work though, right, is Rushing the process can be deadly. And so that's where I think people helpers, especially pastors, need some education on the dynamics and impact of abuse so that they can understand that, A, they probably shouldn't handle it alone. None of us should handle cases solely by ourselves. And then, two, uh, they should be building teams that can help serve victims well and hold perpetrators accountable. And then, three, they should remain engaged at a reasonable level based upon their strengths and their abilities, because I think pastoral input is important. I know there were some advocates and individuals out there who want pastors completely uninvolved, but I just think that's an overreaction. I think pastors need to be wisely involved. Uh, and all helpers, really, uh, I would challenge all helpers not to function in isolation. 
uh, to think that the counselor alone can meet the demands of um, domestic abuse or law enforcement alone or a pastor alone or a social worker alone, uh, I think is asking for trouble Um, because we will fall into these old familiar patterns of marriage reconciliation, of accepting insincere repentance, of rushing the process. So I really appreciate the question. I do think that there are many temptations facing helpers, but I also believe, as 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, that we can share and discuss these temptations because they are common. We can identify them. We can trust God because he is faithful. And in his faithfulness, he gives us the strength to persevere, to endure, to remain somewhat uncomfortable for the benefit of the kingdom and our clients. All right. Thank you so much for joining the PeaceWorks podcast. I really appreciate you guys listening in and being part of uh, the program every week. Until next time, God bless.